Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word or turn on your phone uh, with the Bible in it and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 31. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Would you stand as we read God's Word this morning, uh, getting your aerobics in? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. The Holy Spirit says through Paul, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of a spite house? Let me show you some examples of a spite house. A spite house is a house that is built with the sole intention of irritating your neighbor as an act of revenge. There are thousands of them found all over the world, and they are built on anger. They're built to block views, limit access, and create eyesores. In the 1970s, there was a millionaire landowner in the greater Chicagoland area who had a small sliver of land. And it was, it was a small sliver of land that was between two big complexes, two big apartment complexes. And so this millionaire landowner went to one of the owners of one of the complexes and said, hey, I have just this little sliver of land about five yards wide. Would you, I want to sell it to you. Here's a reasonable price. It doesn't really do anything for me, but it will benefit your complex greatly with a bigger backyard. Well, the, the landowner of the apartment complex said, I don't, that's not a lot of land. You can't do anything with it. And so he offered him pennies on the dollar. Well, the millionaire landlord was not very happy with that. He got offended. And so he went to the other apartment complex landlord, uh, landowner and he said, hey, I want to give you this deal. And, uh, and the guy said, well, I already heard that you talked to our neighbor. Uh, I'm going to give you even less money. Well, this millionaire landowner was so offended, so upset, so insulted that he went and he talked to the city officials, he talked to the building and codes, he wanted to know what he could build on that property. And so he built a tiny house, moved out of his mansion, moved into that house and lived there until the day he died. True story according to Google. (laughs) 
We all live in a world of spite. We live in a world of anger. We live in a world of unforgiveness. And some of you have built a house of spite. And you are living in a chronic state of unforgiveness. Let me let you in on something. Unforgiveness is one of the most powerful, effective forms of bondage in a person's life. And some of you have been hurt. You've been hurt badly by a spouse or an ex-spouse. You've been hurt by a friend. You've been hurt by a pastor, a church member, a church, a coworker, a relative, or a stranger. And you, because of this hurt, have locked yourself into the prison of unforgiveness, into a spite house, and you have built that house on a house of lies by the enemy. Well, I've got good news. Today, you can break free from the prison of unforgiveness. Paul here is writing to a church a group of believers in Asia Minor. He has written three chapters describing in detail all that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done for us in the past. That's chapters one, two, and three. Chapters four and following, he now teaches believers how they are to live their lives in the present and the future by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's teaching in this book that believers are to relate differently than they did before because of what Christ has done for them. Believers are called to follow Christ's example and to follow Christ's life, and especially how to deal with hurt from other people. Let me let you in on something. No one goes through life without being hurt by somebody. So the issue this morning is not if I am hurt, but how do I, as a Christian, deal with hurt when I am hurting and don't want to hurt anymore? Well, Paul here is going to teach us that we can break free from the prison of unforgiveness when we realize the poison of bitterness and go through the process of forgiveness by trusting in the person of forgiveness. So let's just walk through that. Number one, the poison of bitterness. We didn't read this, but in verse 26, the Bible says, Paul says, be angry and sin not. Paul doesn't say, don't be angry. As a matter of fact, anger is a communicable attribute of God. It's an emotion. It's an attribute of God Almighty. Therefore, you can be good and angry. You can have righteous indignation. You can have holy heartburn. So there's nothing wrong with anger. But sadly, most of our anger is unrighteous anger. And he says, Paul says here, do not let the sun go down on that anger. Don't be angry and sin. You can be good and angry. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, many of you were told when you were married, uh, don't go to bed angry with your spouse. And so some of y'all had many sleepless nights, right? <laughs> he says, don't. Let the sun go down on your anger, on your wrath, giving no opportunity to the devil. In other words, Paul says that when we get hurt and when we don't deal with the hurt the way God wants us to deal with the hurt, we're giving the devil a place to do business in our lives. The old King James Version says a foothold, a place of weakness and vulnerability where the devil can exploit us to destroy us. And so within that context, he says in verse 31, let all bitterness be put away. In Paul's mind, there are two ways that we respond to hurt. Two ways that we respond when others have sinned against us. We can either respond with bitterness or forgiveness. Bitterness has roots. And those roots can sink deep into your hearts and fester and destroy your life. 
Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. One commentator said that to see to it means that we should assume that we're more resentful and less forgiving and more controlled by what people have done to us than we think we are. So what is bitterness? Bitterness is an inner disposition that harbors and dwells on past hurt. Sometimes this past hurt is a slow accumulation over a long period of time of small grievances. Some of this hurt is a big offense done in one time and one moment that has really rocked our lives. And so this inner disposition harbors and dwells either on small grievances over a period of time or one big offense. And the problem with bitterness is that it is poison dipped in honey. It goes down sweet, but it kills you from the inside out. See, bitterness is a lie from the enemy that says, I can't believe they did that to you. There's no way you could ever forgive them. You have to make them pay. See, bitterness is often associated with how much you love the offender and how much the offense affected something that you loved. And so if you, uh, if you don't know the person who offends you, uh, then, then their sin against you isn't as likely to make you bitter. But if the person who offended you, the person who sinned against you is someone that you know, someone that you love, you're more likely to become bitter because you had higher expectations on that relationship. See, it's been said that the person you love the most has the power to hurt you the best. And so Paul says here, if you do not root out bitterness, if bitterness takes root in your life, it will escalate to greater and farther things. He says that this cycle of bitterness goes from bitterness to wrath, which is an irritation, anger, animosity, clamor, rage, slander is vilifying or gossiping, and then ultimately leading to malice, which is physically, physical bodily harm. He says that if we do not deal with the wound that is caused by someone else, then that wound will become infected and will become a spiritual cancer that infiltrates every area of our lives. And a lot of people who have been hurt and have harbored that hurt how have as the hurt, the very, make that hurt the very center of their lives. Bitterness is poison. It's been said that bitterness is drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. It makes you sick. Bitterness makes you sick spiritually. It blocks intimacy with God and hinders your prayer life. It makes you sick emotionally, sabotages your joy, and controls your life. It makes you sick relationally, creating paranoia and fear with other people. You can't have deep, meaningful relationships because you're always living, looking for someone to hurt you. It will make you sick physically, having real negative effects to your health by weight gain, heart issues, depression, and according to research, even brittle bones. See, bitterness makes you its slave, and it consumes your life. On January the 1st, 1982, 17-year-old Kevin Tunnell made the biggest mistake of his life. He went to a New Year's Eve party, and he got drunk at that party, and in the wee morning hours on 
January 1st, 1982, he decided to drive his car home. His friend said, don't do it, but he did it anyway. And as he was driving right outside in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., he lost control of his vehicle, smashed into another car, and instantly killed 18-year-old Susan Herzog. Kevin pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. He was sentenced as a juvenile to three years probation and one year's community service. And when Susan's parents, Patricia and Lewis, heard the sentence, they were outraged. They sued Kevin in court and his family for $1.5 million. A few weeks into this suit, the, the parents decided unexpectedly to settle in court. The settlement would be that Kevin would have to only pay $936. The settlement, however, required that Kevin pay the $936 by sending the Herzogs a check for $1 made out to the deceased Susan Herzog every Friday for the next 18 years. One for every year that Susan was alive to remind Kevin of what he had done. Kevin did this for a few years and then he eventually started missing some payments. And so the Herzogs brought him back into court. Kevin said to the judge and said to the Herzogs, I can't do this anymore. Writing Susan's name is too unbearable. I made a box of pre-written checks that go all the way to 2001. Here they are. But the Herzogs said in the court, and this is me paraphrasing, we have no intention of letting him get off and forgiving him. We don't want him to accept what he did and get on with his life. See, they wanted him to be in the prison of his guilt and shame for the rest of his life. But the reality was they were prisoners to their own hurt and anger and not one payment that Kevin would ever make would ever bring their daughter back. See, some of you, you just want payment after payment after payment, thinking that it will fix the hurt. But Tim Keller, in his book, Forgive, said that some people think that by remaining angry, you are giving the wrongdoer what they deserve. But in reality, you are enabling their actions to continue to hurt you. It's poison. The poison of bitterness. But then I want us to look now at the process of forgiveness. He says in verse 32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Paul says that rather than responding to the hurt with bitterness, respond to the hurt by choosing forgiveness. See, if you do not transform the hurt, if you do not transform the pain, then you will transmit the hurt and the pain. If you don't transform it, you'll transmit it. Hurting people hurt people. So how do you break free from this cycle of bitterness? Well, he says forgiveness. Well, then the question is, what is forgiveness? One scholar said, anyone who thinks hard about forgiveness will start a lot more rabbits than he can catch. The topic raises a whole nest of questions and the good answers will seldom be the easy ones. And, and no doubt as we get into this little section of the message that there'll probably be more questions at the end of this message than there are answers given to you from the message. But my hope is, is just to point you to the simple biblical truths of what forgiveness is. The word forgive there means in the Greek to send forth or to send away, to let go from oneself. Literally forgiveness 
is the determined, deliberate willingness to let something go and no longer let it occupy you anymore. It is letting go of the hurt of the past. Now, for us to understand what biblical forgiveness is, we have to deal with the minutia of what so many people have told us that forgiveness is. For us to understand what the Bible says, we have to understand what the Bible doesn't say it is. We have to see what it's not because there's a lot of myths out there when it comes to forgiveness. The first thing that you wanna understand is that forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is not the same thing as forgetting. Sometimes we hear, well, just forgive and forget. But I want you to understand, we always remember, we always carry the wounds of the past, the words that were spoken and the deeds that were done. Forgiveness requires that we face the pain and, 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 and not live in denial. See, when we forgive, we are remembering the sin so that we can forgive it. Secondly, forgiveness is not just simply excusing bad behavior. Often when someone hurts us, we just tend to minimize the offense. And we say, well, that's not, don't think anything about it. Or it's okay, let's just, let's just move on. And I'll tell you that there are times in life that when we have been offended that we should just kind of move on. But that's not forgiveness, that's called forbearance. For, forbearance is overlooking an unpleasant characteristic or an offense that's relatively minor. Uh, listen, when you're driving around in Naples and someone cuts you off, they don't need your forgiveness, they need your forbearance, especially if it's me, okay, right? <laughs> that sometimes you just get little offenses, little things, and we just get all bent out of shape when really we need to just kind of overlook the sin and move on. Proverbs 19, 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Some of you, that's just really what you need to practice. That needs to be a, a fighter verse in your marriage. Because if you don't overlook these little minor offenses, they can accumulate over time and become a big offense. And listen, there is glory in overlooking an offense. But real biblical forgiveness is not just forbearance. It is not just pretending that sin isn't sin or that it doesn't matter. It's not living in denial as if something didn't happen. That type of thinking is cheap. Real forgiveness costs something. For real forgiveness to happen, somebody's gotta pay, something's gotta happen, a debt has been occurred, and something has to be done to, be, to make it right. Think about it this way, if you stole $10 from me, and you came to me and say, hey, I'm sorry, I stole $10 for you, from you, will you forgive me? And I say, I forgive you, how much did it cost me? Now that wasn't rhetorical. So follow with me. If you steal $10 from me and then you come to me and ask me to forgive you and I say I forgive you of the $10 you've stolen from me, how much did it cost me to forgive you? $10, right? Forgiveness always costs. See, forgiveness is not just forgetting. Forgiveness is not just you know, uh, forbearance or just excusing bad behavior. And here's the last one. Forgiveness is not just a feeling. It's more than a feeling. You know, a lot of therapeutic teaching out there says that forgiveness is just something that you do inside of you to keep your emotions under control. And the problem is, is that that type of thinking sees really forgiveness is just a personal thing, a private thing that just shuts down the anger and bitterness and resentment in your own heart without the other person ever repenting, without the other person ever saying that they're sorry. Now let's just be honest with you, that there are times that the offender will never say they're sorry, that they will never repent, or that they can't repent because they're dead or incapacitated. 
In those situations where someone cannot repent or will not repent or are dead, uh, you do need to learn, by God's grace, to internally forgive that person and ask God to change your heart. But that does not mean that if it's possible, you should not seek the repentance of the other person. See, most of us don't like confrontation. We, we, we don't like uh, to, to have to deal head on with the hurt someone's done. So we'll either do it through indirect uh, confrontation, we'll tell our friend, and then that friend will tell the other person. Problem is, is it can become a game of telephone. And then you never know what's gonna really come out of that. But I will tell you that the Bible doesn't teach us to go tell a friend how someone else has hurt you so they tell them. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible says where to go. Because here's what you gotta understand. You cannot change what you do not confront. Well, you say, well, I, you know, I've been hearing stuff that is really, I shouldn't have to worry about that. Well, let's hear what the Bible says, right? Let's not hear what Dr. Oz or Dr. Spock or whoever out there is telling you. What does Jesus say? Well, here's what Jesus is, Luke 17, three. He says, pay attention to yourselves. In other words, listen up. If your brother sins, what are you supposed to do? Rebuke him. Not tell him, tell somebody else, not get online, not run your mouth. You go tell him. And if he repents, forgive him. Well, you say, well, I don't like Luke. <laughs> I'm more of a Matthew kind of guy. Well, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Get out the Facebook, get out the TikTok, get out the Twitter, get off of that junk, and you go to that person. Don't tell a phone, don't tell a friend, and don't tell it market. You just tell that person. That's the words of Jesus. And here's what you gotta understand. The reason why you should go is because you can't assume that the other person knows that they've hurt you. They may not know. For real biblical forgiveness to take place, if you read throughout the Bible, it seems, and not seems, it is apparent that the onus is on the offended to confront their offender. And if they repent, then they are responsible to forgive. You say, well, that's just weird. C.S. Lewis said it best. He says, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. So what is forgiveness? Chris Braun defines forgiveness as this. Forgiveness is a commitment by, which the, offend, uh, by, by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Tim Keller says that forgiveness is granted an event before it is felt process. It is a promise before God not to take revenge on a wrongdoer for his or her sin against you. Making that promise entails three practical commitments. So I'm just gonna read this a little slower so you can process it a little better. Number one, when you forgive, you're promising to not constantly bring the sin up to the wrongdoer in order to browbeat and punish them. Two, to not constantly bring the sin up to other people in order to hurt the wrongdoer's reputation and relationship with others. Three, 
not to constantly bring the sin up to yourself, not to keep the anger hot, not to replay the video of it in order to cherish the feeling of nobility and virtue that comes from having been treated unjustly. So when you forgive someone, you are not, you are making a promise to not constantly bring it up to the person who hurt you. You're not gonna run your mouth to others about it and you're not gonna let it live rent-free in your mind anymore. That's what forgiveness is. Well, how do we do it? We give you four steps. If you wanna forgive somebody, four steps. Number one, true biblical forgiveness happens when we tell the truth. We must tell the truth. It's already been said, we're gonna say it again. For you to experience what God wants you to experience in forgiving others. You have to expose the hurt rather than cover it up with half-truths and excuses. You have to say to the person, what you did to me was wrong. Here's how it affected me. You must admit the hurt that the other person has given you and name it for what it is. You have to confront the person with truth that they have hurt you. You can't just say, oh, I'm okay. Oh, I'm not that angry. You have to be honest because where there is no truth, there cannot be peace. You have to have truth and peace. The first stop, step is telling the truth. But again, we are non-confrontational people by nature. But for us to have biblical forgiveness, there has to be a telling of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Secondly, you have to have compassion for the offender. Now, this seems very, uh, very almost unsympathetic. Some of you have been hurt uh, in ways that none of us can fathom. You've been hurt physically, sexually. Uh, you've been stolen from, lied about, and cheated on. But yet, what we have to understand is that for us to forgive the other person, we have to see the other person not just as the offender. Marisol Wolf, uh, who went through grave injustices in Eastern Europe, uh, writes this. He says, forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. In other words, for me to really forgive somebody, I can't just see them as public enemy number one. See, what happens when someone hurts us, we begin to have in our own mind, thoughts about them that make them the worst person in the entire world. I don't know if you've ever gone to Disney or gone to an amusement park and, and they do these, you'll see these little people and they'll sketch uh, people's faces. The pictures are called caricatures. You ever seen a caricature? I don't like to go, I don't, I've never gotten one done because what they normally do is they accentuate certain characteristics on your face and I'm already messed up enough as it is. I don't need a picture of somebody to remind me how ugly I am, okay? But what happens is they'll make a nose really big or ears really big or hair really bald or whatever to accentuate things. And what happens when someone else has hurt us deeply, what we do is we create caricatures of that person in our mind that are not reality. But here's what you have to understand. We have a lot more in common with the sinner that is harming us than we admit. Because like us, they are human, and like us, they are broken, and like us, they are sinners. We are sinners, we are broken, we are human. And for us to move towards forgiveness, we have to see the other person as a fallen, broken human being, not just as some caricature that we have of them in our mind. Third, tell the truth 
Have compassion for the offender. Third, cancel the debt. Going back to what we talked about earlier, that for you to forgive, you have to absorb the loss. Rather than making that person suffer, you refuse to do so. You inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer yourself rather than make them pay for it. You deny yourself the right of revenge. And listen, it's not just suspending payment. You know, what some of us do is somebody, we, they offend us and they hurt us and they tell us that they're sorry. And we say, oh, well, I forgive you. But really, we're not really forgiving them. We're just suspending the debt until they do something again. And then we let them have it. That doesn't happen in marriage, does it? That doesn't happen at the job, does it? No, when you forgive someone, you are saying that the debt that has just occurred between me and you in this moment is canceled and gone forever. Forgiveness requires that you tell the truth, that you have compassion on the offender, that you three, cancel the debt, four, that you let them go. That you release them from the prison of your own mind. That when you see them, you don't just see them as the violator or the debtor, but you see them differently. That you're not gonna dwell on what they have done to you. You're not gonna replay over and over the wrong in your own imagination. You let them go. Now, let me just let you in on something. That, that, that this does not mean that they should not pay for their consequences, for the consequences of their action. It doesn't mean that you should abandon the penalty that human law requires. If someone has physically assaulted you, sexually assaulted you, if someone has stolen from you or someone has done something that is against the law, then, then you need to allow the law to do its job. Keller again says, Christian forgiveness never undermines the pursuit of justice. It promotes it. But what it means is that you're letting them go. See, when you forgive somebody, you're setting two people free them and you. See, there's two levels of forgiveness. Level one of forgiveness is releasing others. Level two of forgiveness is releasing yourself. That you're no longer gonna live in the prison you built around the hurt and the offense. The hope is, the goal of forgiveness is to bring about reconciliation and restoration. Now, there are times that that doesn't seem possible, that the offense is so hard that, you're, you know, that, that, that you can forgive them and you can release them, but you're not gonna be their best friend. I get that, I understand that, and listen, there are some of you that have gone through so much hurt, I am not telling you that to forgive them means that you have to completely reconcile and restore and it goes back to the way it was. What I am saying is, is that that should be the goal. So let's get to the last point. Again, it goes back to how can I do that? That, that? How can I do that? I don't wanna tell anybody that they've hurt me. I don't wanna see them as a human being. I see them as some evil caricature. I'm not gonna, they need to pay and I can't let this go. How can I do this? This seems very unrealistic. I can't forgive anyone like that. Well, the only way you're ever gonna learn is by seeing the person of forgiveness. Elie Wiesel, who is a, is a Jewish author, he's a survivor of the Holocaust, went through Auschwitz-Birkenau, was asked after he escaped a few years later if he could forgive his captors. Could you ever forgive them, Elie? Here's what he said. He said, who am I to forgive? I'm not God. No, I cannot forgive. You know, in one sense, he was right. He within himself does not have the ability, the capacity to forgive like this. Well, how can we do it if we don't have the capacity within ourselves to do it? Well, let's hear what Paul says. Paul says 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Have you ever heard the statement, to err is human, to forgive divine? See, when you forgive, you're letting go of your power and latching on to his. I can't, he can. As you receive the grace of God, you are to express. As you've experienced, you are to express the grace of God to others. Listen, we do not forgive because we are loving and forgiving people. We are to forgive because we are loved and forgiven people. He says in verse one, be imitators. The word imitators mimics, mimites is the Greek word. Be mimics of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See, Jesus forgave me of my debt. He forgave me of the debt that I owed. A thousand lifetimes for all eternity could not repay for the debt that I owe. And yet he paid the debt. He absorbed the cost. He canceled the debt. And notice that in his paying of our debt, he did not claim to be a victim. Not one time do you ever see Jesus claiming to be a victim, but what he is is an agent of healing. And when he died, the father canceled the debts that stood between us and God. And because of Jesus, I am reconciled and right with God now and forever. See, what you have to understand is that Jesus never asks us to do what he's not already done. You know, on the cross, Jesus said, as they were nailing his hands and feet, he said, Father, forgive them, what? They know not what they do. Up until this week, I've never really thought who the they were. You ever heard somebody say, you know, well, so-and-so is, uh, doesn't like something. Who is it? Well, well, they just don't like it. Well, who are they? Well, they are them. <laughs> who are the they? Well, the they here of the context, it seems, according to what I read in the Gospels, is that when he says, Father, forgive them, the them, the they, were the executioners, the Roman soldiers who were nailing his hands and feet to the cross. Jesus, on the cross, endured the ultimate injustice for us. And he forgave those who nailed him. No one will ever be as mistreated as Jesus was mistreated. And so, the power of forgiveness comes by the person of forgiveness. We must consciously base our forgiveness of others on God's forgiveness of us. If God can forgive me, you know why we struggle with forgiving others? Is that we don't think it's that big of a deal that God forgave us. We think, well, you know, for Hitler, it would take a lot. For Bin Laden, it would take a lot. For me, nothing. No. You know what it took to save you? You know what it took to forgive you? It took the death of God on the cross for you. My sin nailed him there. Your sin nailed him there. And until you and I see that it was all of God's grace and mercy that he forgave us, we're going to struggle forgiving other people. But if God can forgive me in Jesus, 
And by the power and grace of Jesus, he can help me forgive them. Do you understand that forgiveness is fundamental to being a Christian? And you and I will never be more like God than when we forgive other people. Let me end with this. I've told you this story before, but I'm gonna tell you the story again, and then I'm gonna tell you the rest of the story. Some of you remember a guy named Paul Harvey. That's what he would do. The rest of the story. Everyone younger than 30 has no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> Corey Timboon, who's one of my heroes, been to her house in Harlem in the Netherlands. She wrote, when I was in elementary school, I read the book, The Hiding Place, and then I saw the movie, The Hiding Place. Commend it to you, especially your children. She was arrested and taken to Nazi concentration camp because her and her family hid Jews during the Holocaust. She was put in Ravensbrück camp. She was humiliated, tortured, raped, abused, and starved. She was in her early 40s when this all took place. By the grace of God, even though no one else in her family survived, she survived the Holocaust. And in 1947, she was speaking to crowds all throughout Europe. She's speaking to crowds about God's love and forgiveness. And one day in Europe, she was speaking. And in the crowd that day, I've told you this story, was a former guard who was in that camp and was actually one of her abusers. After the speech that she just made on forgiveness, he came up to her after everyone was gone and told her he'd become a Christian after the war. And he then extended his hand towards her and asked for forgiveness for all the cruel things that I have done to her. Corey, fresh from the pain of Ravensbrook camp, said this. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had to be forgiven every day and couldn't do it. Betsy had died in that place. That was her sister. Could he erase her slow, terrible death by simply asking? She stood there looking at his hand, looking around, and she was in a dilemma because she knew about Christian forgiveness. She said that forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. And so in that moment, looking at his hand, she closes her eyes and prays silently. She says, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so she writes, so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. She says, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. She says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Some of you hear that and you say, well, that's good for her, but that's just totally unrealistic. And you, 
you don't know. And if the person who offended me and hurt me came to me and did that, I don't think I could do that. I, I just don't think I have the capacity to do that. Or if I did do that, I don't know if I would really mean it. And, and, I'm, and here's a, this is a true story. And, and we listen to Corey and we say, well, oh, wow, you did this fresh out of the Holocaust, fresh out of camp. Wow, did it really work that way for you? Now I wanna give you the rest of the story. Later on, she recounts this event She's now in her, she's now 80. She writes, I wish you could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on. But they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Wow. Do you understand his mercies are new every morning? Great is his faithfulness. You can be set free from the prison of unforgiveness. By receiving into your life the fresh grace that God gives you every day. And when you struggle, you come to him and you draw fresh from him the strength you need to love and forgive. I don't know who's hurt you. I don't. I know who's hurt me, but I don't know who's hurt you. I don't know how you've been hurt. I know that our church has gone through a lot of hurt over the years. Some of you are still struggling with the hurt. Some of you are hurting for others who have been hurt. Some of you are really struggling with forgiveness. Here's what I want you to do. Do everybody just to bow your head? Nobody's looking around. Even all the people standing around in the back, they're supposed to be watching everybody. You bow your head too. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this one question. Who have I offended? Who have I offended? Who have I hurt that I need to ask them to forgive me? Here's a second question. Who has hurt me that I need to confront? Who has hurt me that I need to forgive? Third question. Do I really realize how much I've offended God? Do I really realize the depths of my own depravity? And have I ever truly asked Him to forgive me of my sins and save me? Question one, who have I offended? You've offended God. Question two, who do I need to forgive? That's between you and God. Question number three is that everyone in this room needs God's forgiveness. And the good news is, he'll give it to you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just stay where you are. I'm gonna pray.
Father in heaven, I ask that your Holy Spirit does a work that I cannot do. Would you remove the poison of bitterness in our hearts? Would you help us, God, to follow the process by looking to the person that if you can forgive me, God, I can forgive them. And God, give us the strength to do it. And for that person or persons in this room or watching online that doesn't have a relationship with you, God, would today be the day that they ask you to forgive them of their sins and save them? Be the Lord of their life. God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. I want you to hear the words of this song. And if you feel led to come down here and pray, come down. If you feel led to get on your knees in your chair, do it. If there's somebody you know you've offended in this room, go grab them by the hand. Bring them down to the altar. Or go see them. Tell them you're sorry. Do it. The good news is we can run to the Father. Listen to the words of this song. Sing along. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.